Google Earth allows users to explore the imagery of the real world. Imagery for Google Earth is taken from satellites, cars equipped with cameras, and other sources. Google Earth renders a data-intensive 3D model of the world on a client application such as a desktop browser or a virtual reality system. WebAssembly is a runtime for executing code other than JavaScript in a browser-based environment. WebAssembly is useful for data-intensive workloads, and developers can use programming languages such as Rust or C++ in the browser by compiling to WebAssembly. Jordan Mears works on Google Earth, and he joins the show to talk about the engineering behind Google Earth and how WebAssembly is being used to improve efficiency. Jordan also discusses the state of tooling around WebAssembly today. To find all of our episodes about WebAssembly, you can check out the Software Daily app for iOS. It contains all of our old episodes, all 1,000 of them, and you can sort by topics and greatest hits, and you can find related links to each of our episodes if you're looking for some complimentary reading material. You can also comment on episodes, you can start discussions with people, and you can become a paid subscriber if you're looking for ad-free episodes. You can get those ad-free episodes by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash subscribe. We will have the Android app soon, but in the meantime, if you're an iOS developer, please check out the Software Daily app if you're interested. Jordan Mears, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. I'd like us to spend this show exploring the engineering of Google Earth. And I think it will make sense to give some overview of the back end, talk about the middleware, and then once that sets us up for a conversation about the front end, we'll be able to talk about WebAssembly in more detail. Because I feel like Google Earth is an application where the back end and the middleware are just as important to understanding the implications of WebAssembly as the front end. But before we actually get into the engineering, let's talk a little bit about Google Earth at a high level. What is Google Earth? So (laughs) that's a good question because Google Earth is a very interesting product, especially at Google, is that it's basically an application that allows you to explore almost anywhere on the planet and view, you know, imagery, satellite 3D imagery, and so forth, and kind of visit places that you would never ever be able to travel. I like to kind of use the analogy of it's kind of a video game of the real world. And especially at Google, it's a product that's very different from some of our other products in the sense that it's really just Google's kind of gift to the world and working to support the mission of, you know, organizing the world's information and making it, you know, universally available and useful. I probably botched that mission statement, but you get the (laughs) gist. (laughs) Yeah. So how do people use it? How do people use Google Earth? So Google Earth has actually been around for about 14 years at this point. And as a result, it has quite a bit of legacy. So you can actually access Google Earth in kind of four different ways. The original application itself is actually a download and installable client on Mac, Windows, and Linux. You can actually still get that client and use that client today. However, about four years ago or so, we kind of embarked on a project to kind of just reimagine Google Earth at large. And in that, about two years ago, we actually launched Google Earth on the web for the first time ever, as well as revamped our Android and iOS clients. So you can kind of access it on very quite a few variety of platforms. However, depending on what platform you get, you know, the experience is a little bit different, but the overall gist of, of experience is there on every platform. So, How does Google Earth differ from Google Maps? Yeah, we get this question a lot, and I can't tell you how many times I've met people that, you know, hear that I work on Google Earth, and they're like, yeah, I use Google Earth every day, and they whip out their phone and show me Google Maps, and it's like, great, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I have to explain the difference. So, you know, Google Earth, the difference between Google Earth and Google Maps is Google Maps is about kind of finding your way and getting things done. I think Google Earth is about getting lost. And the idea is that it's really meant for exploration, learning about the world, you know, seeing something new and that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, Maps is more about like, where's the nearest restaurant? How do I get driving directions from point A to point B? And how do I do things kind of, you know, geospatially in my normal day-to-day life? And we really focus on that. I mean, Google Earth itself is 
you know, wildly used for all kinds of things, everything from like, it's very heavily used in like education and learning the world and at schools, but it's also used a lot in things like crisis response and real estate and solar panel planning and all kinds of crazy things that you'd never think about. And that maps just isn't suited for because you need that sort of focus on the satellite imagery and less the, you know, what I like to call the paper map, you know. Give me a brief history of the engineering of Google Earth. How has the software stack evolved over those 14 years? So Google Earth was actually originally an external product. It was developed by a company called Keyhole that Google acquired and then relaunched. And what's funny about it is, have you ever played the video game Crash Bandicoot? Of course. The original engine for Keyhole and Google Earth was based on that rendering engine that was used in that video game and video games like that called Intrinsic Alchemy. And that client today actually still uses all that same technology. So the desktop client, it's all C++ based. It's cross-platform using the Qt framework for the UI and so forth. And that's still true today. And that was true very early in Google Earth's history all the way to now. So we still develop that client and we we use cross-platform. We use that same rendering engine and so forth. However, about six years ago, we kind of decided to diverge and say, we need to reboot the technology. And so we actually sort of stopped and restarted the Google Earth and all of its actual engine. It's still all C++ primarily, but we started a number of new projects. There's an open source project that Google sponsors called Ion. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but that actually does a layer of abstraction over OpenGL that allows us to compile across platforms. And that includes everything from Windows, Linux, Mac, Android, iOS, and now obviously the web through native client and WebAssembly. So about six years ago, you know, we built this project called Ion. On top of that, we rebuilt our renderer from the ground up and founded just really a whole new code base for the client. Well, that sounds like a pretty useful abstraction because, you know, the core problem of Google Earth is in some sense rendering this 3D model of the world and you know you can forecast that technology for rendering stuff is going to just improve but kind of the core problem of just like business logic of rendering stuff on the page you know you're probably going to want to do I don't know it's just it's, it seems like a useful abstraction because you can make updates kind of these lower level updates like you have in WebAssembly here at that ion interface level. Yeah, it's it's been easier for us to port to different platforms and a great example of that is actually like native client WebAssembly and we also actually used to have an as of JS build that did function because of that abstraction and another great example of where this is helping us is that with Apple moving away from OpenGL and onto Metal or whatever it's called that actually poses a problem for us because if we want to keep producing our iOS application, we need to port to yet another, you know, graphics rendering API. And yeah, we're actually doing that work kind of at our lower level and and not really impacting the overall like client code itself and so forth. So, but we're working through that as well right now. That's cool. A side note about Crash Bandicoot, there's like a really good Quora answer somewhere about some of the engineering problems with Crash Bandicoot. I highly recommend checking that out if you're interested in vintage like PlayStation engineering <laughs> problems. <laughs> Random side note. But so I go to g.co slash earth. That's the Google Earth short link. There is some load time when I go there. There's like a a little progress bar. Stuff is loading. And it doesn't surprise me because there's a lot of stuff going on in the Google Earth application. What's going on as that progress bar is sliding along? What's loading on my browser? So currently, we use Native Client, which is kind of the Chrome-only technology for cross-compiling native code for the web. So specifically, when that loading bar is showing, it's actually both downloading that a native client binary, as well as doing the translation of that into the runtime. And it actually, if you notice, if you look closer, you'll notice that it kind of freezes, the loader freezes about like two thirds, three thirds of the way through. That's actually when the code is starting up in your browser. And then it just, we have no way to measure what progress is happening there. So we can't really indicate what's going on. And then it just disappears when it loads. So that's kind of what is doing right now. But you're right, because... Google Earth is really a heavyweight application. You know, it's a kind of a video game of the real world. And so there's there's a lot. Our binary size for the web is unusually large. 
and there's a lot of you know threads and so forth that we have to allocate memory we have to load up you know there's a lot going on to kind of get this thing up and running so yeah we try to show the user that something happening and kind of give a little joke about you know quantifying the world i don't know if you noticed but if you reload that page over and over again it actually rotates through i want to say 12 or 15 different messages of just random ways to quantify the world, everything from human population to grains of sand to the amount of liters in the ocean, et cetera. So when this thing loads, I can take a tour through Earth. I can land myself anywhere on the geospatial map and look around at mountains and look at storefronts and it's just a kind of a beautiful experience. You know, you can very easily imagine augmented reality or virtual reality applications built with Google Earth. But the engineering problems are also deeply fascinating. So if I think about my Google Earth runtime, I know that the entire planet's imagery is not loaded on my browser at all times. I know that as I move from one place to another in the virtual Earth, it's loading maybe adjacent areas, it's probably doing some cache prefetching. And so in order to have this data dynamically fetched to this heavyweight browser application, there needs to be some rich client-server relationship where my browser is eagerly fetching data from the server based on some rules or heuristics. Can you give me more detail on the client-server relationship? Yeah, so for things like the imagery data, the 3D data, and even the kind of what we call the map data, the lines, the labels, and stuff like that. So basically, as you move around, we're analyzing basically what the camera can see and kind of where it's flying to. And so we pretty aggressively both send out and cancel and process requests based on where you're going, where you are. And you can even see indication of how well resolved the current scene is. If you look down in the bottom right, of your window, you'll see that there's a little spinner that gives you a percentage sign. That, that's actually representative of how like resolved the given scene is. I use the data in from the server. Has it been you know decompressed, processed, and actually drawn into the frame? And basically, in broad strokes, what the server sort of provides us in that case is that we have you know the whole world at various levels of resolution. You know everything from satellite imagery to aerial imagery to stuff collected by driving around on the ground, etc. And we kind of build this hugely complex and detailed mosaic of the entire world. And then what we do to that is we actually split it up into what we call a a quad tree. So basically, as you're zoomed further out, we can take a slice of the world at much lower resolution. And it's also much smaller data-wise, so we can load that very quickly. But as you zoom in, we just have more and more levels of detail and tiles that represent that detail all the way down to the ground level, such that as you move around, you're not necessarily loading more data because you're just getting more detailed data of a smaller area, if you follow me. Oh, interesting. So there is a data structure that is representing a geospatial segment of the Earth, and that data structure kind of has the you know, you can go deeper and deeper into it and see more and more granular detail of that data structure. Yeah. And you can think of it as kind of a pyramid, right? Like if you think of the whole planet's surface as a pyramid, I mean, if you're down on the ground, there's going to be, I don't even know the math, but millions, if not billions of individual tiles across the whole surface. But if you're zoomed out to space level, there's, you know, maybe only four or 16, right? And as far as the detail in those tiles at the top, where there's only four or 16 tiles, the detail is a lot lower, right? It's because what you can perceive in something on a screen that size isn't that high. We don't have to paint the Empire State Building in 3D detail when you're zoomed out that far, for example. But if you're in Manhattan, we need a really highly detailed model of that building, right? You call that data structure a quad tree? Yeah, it's a quad tree. So basically what that means is that it's a pyramid of data that is subdivided by four as you go down. So four becomes 16, 16 becomes 32, et cetera, et cetera, all the way to the ground. Huh. Huh. So I guess that defines like the level of zoom almost, right? Like at each increment of zooming in further, I'm seeing a 4x multiple on the granularity? Yeah, you can think of it that way. Is Yeah, we basically maintain 
and altitude in the camera, and that roughly translates to a numerical zoom level that then that's the set of tiles that the client will pull from from hmm. the server. So, hmm. Cool. Do you pre-create all these quad trees and then they're just sitting on the back end, or are these created on the fly based on the angle of the Earth that I'm looking at? They're all actually pre-created. I don't actually work on the data processing and serving. I work more on the client, but my understanding is they're actually Mm -hmm. just all on disk at the time. We do do some transformations of them on the fly, as in, but I think that's more just compression formats and stuff, because for example, phones pull the tiles in a different format than necessarily the web app does or the desktop app does. But yeah, all the tiles are pre-computed beforehand and just on disk. And the other kind of interesting thing about that, it's not just the current set of tiles of the current picture of the world. We actually have versions of the world from all of this imagery capture reaching as far back as I want to say like the early 1900s in some areas. So like there's old aerial pictures of New York that someone took out of some of the first planes that we've been able to go back and find in archives and then process. And uh, you can actually access those historical tiles as well. You can't do that in today's web application, but that feature is a feature of the desktop application that we're looking to port into the web application at some point. Okay, this is a PSA that if anyone from that backend team is interested in coming on the show, I'd love to do an interview with them. And if you bump into somebody, like you can let them know, because I'm very intrigued by that problem. We've done some shows in the past around these companies that are like kind of doing street view kind of backend processing, you know, this emergent set of, you know, application backends that are taking photos and stitching them together and building augmented reality systems or building virtual reality systems, basically building these virtual models of the real world. This is a really tough data engineering problem. But that's not why you're on the show. You're on the show to talk about WebAssembly. So we should get closer to the front end. I would like to know a little bit about the middleware. So to keep the relationship between the back end and the front end fast, you know, if, if we just think of this problem of basically fetching the quad trees that seems like the you know kind of the core problem here is which quad trees should we be fetching and like how should we be streaming them to the front end what's the relationship between the front end to the back end do you use like protocol buffers or like how is data being shuttled between them yeah so generally speaking everything's transferred in protocol buffer format that's usually just the metadata though i don't think the actual bytes of the imagery are transferred in that format they're actually done, I think, in DXT or something like that, but don't quote me on that. Cause I, DXT? Yeah, DXT, I think, is the compression format that we use there. That one I'm not as sure on. I, I don't actually work on that part of the code myself. But yeah, generally speaking, communication between our client software and the back end, especially for things like searches and other content, it's all protocol buffers as the wire format. With the actual imagery and compression data, I don't think it's the same case. It's actually just, yeah, some sort of native compression that we use and then decompress on the client. And I think DXT is one of the popular ones. Can we boil down the responsibilities of the client in terms of data fetching to just grabbing these quad trees? Or is there anything else we should touch on that front before we get to the rendering side of things? Well, I mean... You know, rendering imagery is just one piece of what the client does, right? But you're able to search for things, you're able to look up content, you're able to read Voyager stories, there's all kinds of like other things you can do. So as far as talking to the server and whatnot, it really just depends on the activity, but the client has to handle making the right requests for that. And we, I mean, we use just simple HTTP requests for all of that. There's no like socket involved or anything like that. It's very straightforward. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's very simple, honestly. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, cool. I just wanted to get a contour for people who are less familiar with Google Earth. So as we said, this is a resource-intensive application. What are the client requirements to run Google Earth? Yeah, so Google Earth on the web specifically, it does require Chrome, and that's due to our use of native client of cross-compiling our core C++ for the web. Beyond that, we don't really have strict requirements as far as, you know, kind of RAM you should have, how good of a machine you should have, what graphics cards are required. We really delegate a lot of that to just what Chrome, the browser itself, is able to handle and how to run. However, if you do have some lower-end hardware and so forth, you know, you are probably going to have a bad time. (laughs) And it's interesting, we even do kind of keep track in our analytics. We do actually track things like 
you know, frame rate for users, the amount of drop frames that we're getting. We do actually track analytics on that. And we even do collect some statistics mm. on like what graphics cards and so forth are like the worst behaving ones for our product. But by and large, you don't need like a super high end machine to run Google Earth. You just need something that was, you know, made in this decade. So You've mentioned something called native client a couple times. Mm-hmm. What is that? So native client, well, maybe I should just back up a little bit. So Google Earth itself is implemented, the client itself is implemented almost extensively on C++ code. And what we do is we compile that code across all of our various platforms, you know, web, Android, and iOS in this case. And the advantage that that gives us is that it keeps us from having to build this application basically three times. You know, I would say 80 to 90% of all of our application logic and code is actually in C++. And then there's only about an overall surface of like maybe 10 to 20% that's actually in each platform. And that's really helpful for us as far as reuse. The other part of it too is that being in native code, generally speaking, it's a lot more performant for the user on the device. I think that's especially true on mobile devices. So native client is a technology that Chrome came out with some years ago that allowed you to cross compile native code and run it in a browser. I would equivalent it to some kind of, you know, bytecode engine that would run in your browser that's, you know, not JavaScript or whatever. So at the time that we launched Google Earth for the web, it was really the only technology that allowed us to get the kind of performance that we wanted in the browser. So instead of not being able to launch a web product, we went ahead and launched it in using native client in Chrome only. However, since that time, you know, WebAssembly has become the W3C sponsored and supported standard and all of the major browsers are trying to move towards WebAssembly. So we're trying to move ourselves away from native client on the WebAssembly as the new way to compile native code for the web, basically, hoping to get some of the same reuse and performance out of that. One way to describe WebAssembly, and this is not a comprehensive way to describe it, but WebAssembly lets us write modules in languages other than JavaScript and run them in the browser. If you were able to do that with native client, why wasn't there a bunch of hype and excitement and tooling and ecosystem stuff built around native client? So I don't know the history of native client really well myself, but my overall impression is is that native client was something that kind of Google and Chrome developed, put out to the world, and it just didn't see the adoption from the browser community. So other browser manufacturers didn't really pick it up and kind of let it become that mm-hmm. standard, even though it was kind of open source the whole time. And I think that's because that there it was one of probably a number of ways at the time. I mean, there's was Asm.js was one of the other ways to do this kind of thing, to where it would take native code and actually compile it as JavaScript. And it was kind of unclear like which way it was going to be probably the, the way that most browsers would go. But the reality came that neither of those took off. And instead, the browser community kind of introduced this thing called WebAssembly, and, and they all sort of rallied around that. So instead of trying to push forward with two standards, Google and the Chrome team just said, okay, hey, let's let go of native client and really help out getting WebAssembly off the ground. And that seems to be where things are going and, and we're you know participating in porting that way. So Describe what WebAssembly is in your own words. So WebAssembly for us is a way to allow us to compile yeah, other things in JavaScript for the web. And in our case, it's all C++. And the big benefit that gives us is again, largely the code reuse as well as the performance. And my understanding of how it works is that it takes native C++, compiles it down into some, you know, bytecode style format that the browser can then interpret and then run in the browser. Why is that necessary? Just taking a very naive approach, like why why can't I just do everything in in JavaScript? I mean, my my browser runs JavaScript just fine. Why do I need these other languages? I think that that would be fine if, at least for us on Google Earth, if we weren't cross-platform. For example, we have other rendering engines here at Google that run in the browser that are implemented in pure JavaScript. However, for us, we're actually a relatively small engineering team, and we want to make Google Earth available to as many people as possible. So I think that's our main choice for that. Also, I think there's just some applications that JavaScript itself just can't perform as well as native code can. And that's probably the second benefit that we get from that as well, is I think that it would be just a lot slower of an experience for a user. 
before we delve a little bit deeper into WebAssembly, I want to revisit what you said about the rendering stack. So you said there's something called Ion, OpenGL is involved. I'd like to better understand where WebAssembly fits into your rendering workflow. Yeah, so WebAssembly native client, you know, Android's NDK, it's basically just kind of a compilation target for us. So it's a architecture, I would say, that we target. And so all of our code is very abstracted into just kind of native C++. And then there's a very thin amount of API-specific code that's written. And in the case of WebAssembly, that code is written to the Inscripten API. And then when we want to build Google Earth for WebAssembly, we just compile targeting that architecture instead of producing you know, a native client binary, it produces a WebAssembly binary instead as a result output. But the actual then web application itself is all the same JavaScript that's built around it. So, Describe the state of tooling around WebAssembly today. So it works. I mean... <laughs> it, it works. <laughs> all <was> right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's some nuance to it, though. You know, the tool chain itself is coming together. I would say it's still probably a little bit early on for us. It does work. We can produce, you know, several versions of our application, both single and multi-threaded using WebAssembly. It works in all runs. However, inside of that, there are limitations, I think, in some of the API, some of the tooling and how it works. And I'll give you kind of a specific example of that. In WebAssembly, there's basically two ways to do your compilation. They're called backends. One of them is the LLVM backend, and the other one is the ASM to WASM backend. And everyone is pushing in the WebAssembly world to start using the LLVM backend. However, it's not the default environment. It doesn't work with Google Earth. We aren't able to use it. And as a result, our compilation step is really to compile out an ASM.js binary and then have it converted into a WebAssembly binary as a result. It, you know, it makes build times longer. It doesn't support as many features. An example of that is something like SIMD, also source map debugging. And so we're using that today, but you know, we'd love to move on to the LLVM backend. And I think the WebAssembly and scripting community would like us to do that as well, or just everyone to do that, because it is supposed to become the standard way of doing it, but it's just not there yet, for example. So I would say that, you know, as far as being able to build an application in WebAssembly, it's actually not very hard. It's pretty easy to write to the API and then get something out of it. But as far as like little tiny nuances in through the whole flow that are still being kind of optimized and worked out and fixed and so forth. There's some great writing by... Lynn Clark and Till Schneiderite and some other people from Mozilla. There's also a lot of good content from people from Fastly who have written about the state of WebAssembly. This is really a big project. It's tremendous in scope in terms of how much tooling and like compiler stuff needs to be built. Can you help us like paint a picture of why is there so much tooling that needs to be built to enable this thing? Like you kind of articulated by just saying, yeah, this thing just lets you run languages other than JavaScript on the web. Like, okay, sounds fairly simple. Why is there so much work involved in making this thing a reality? Yeah, compilers are hard. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's not an answer I know that I have a great a great answer for. I mean, I think there's just the amount of detail that goes into making things work on so many varied amounts of hardware, on so many different browsers, et cetera, et cetera. It's just very complicated. And maybe a small example I can think of that that we've ran into is that when you want to write a WebAssembly binary, you actually write to what is called the Inscript and API in C++. So it provides all these methods on ways to do network fetches, to you know starting threads, to all kinds of just things, right, that browsers do. And what we found is that, you know, as we write against those methods and stuff, we run into all these little details. For example, one of the things that we run into pretty commonly is that we're really interested in using multi-threaded web assembly binaries because it really helps us with performance. However, in that API, there's so much detail and so many methods that just weren't written with that in mind originally that we do we run into bugs a lot where it's like, oh, this, this method's blocking on the main thread and it really shouldn't be. Why is that? And then, oh, okay, well, we have to fix this, right? So there's just so much, I think, detail in making every little bit work and work well that it is really complicated and it takes a lot of time. 
The other thing too for us is as a product that just wants to use WebAssembly, browsers have to do as much implementation as there is tooling that needs to be built. So it's not so much that you can produce these binaries with the tool chain and the compiler and all that kind of stuff. It's that the browsers need to then interpret that bytecode and actually run it accurately. And that's a place that we really struggle as just a product that wants to use WebAssembly is because the support for WebAssembly across the ecosystem is, is pretty varied, actually, and especially around the support of multi-threading. Mm. I'd like to go deeper into the subject of threading. So what kinds of modules that you write in WebAssembly are multi-threaded. What do you need out of multi-threading support for Google Earth? Yeah, so Google Earth is, you know, a 3D graphical application, right? And so basically what that means at its heart is that we have this infinite loop that just runs on the main thread and tries to draw as many frames as fast as it can. And inside of that, there's a lot of just other work that we need to do that interrupts that main thread. So like ideally that main thread should loop as fast as possible, do as little work as possible and just draw frames. You know, that's that's what gives the user a smooth experience, right? But because Google Earth is constantly fetching things over the network, it's decompressing data, it's doing all kinds of other work. If we can't run that on background frames, that means we have to do it on that main thread and block. So the user gets a slower experience, the thing will freeze while it's trying to decompress, you know, that 3D model so it can then render it, et cetera, et cetera. So threading is actually pretty important for any kind of graphically intense application. And without that, you just get, you know, jank and a slower experience for the user. So threading is really important for us in the sense that we can background so many things that the main thread doesn't need to worry about and then just deliver the data to the main thread as it's ready and let it pull it in and draw it very quickly. This may be a dumb question or a question that doesn't really make sense, but how would this be different if it was just like written in JavaScript, like just, you know, front-end JavaScript code that was kind of executing in a single-threaded fashion? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously JavaScript is a, generally speaking, single-threaded in the sense that it's just one single thread and one kind of overall runtime that you have to do stuff in. And you could do that. I mean, with JavaScript, you can use workers to do other work. But if you look at the way WebAssembly is actually implemented, it's actually using web workers as their secondary threads. So it's kind of the same thing in a, in a lot of ways. I think if you know Google Earth was written in just native JavaScript code, we'd probably try to use workers for a lot of the work that we use threads for in C++ and WebAssembly. So I feel like you could probably go after the same approach in the same way a lot of times. I just don't know how the performance would compare because I have never tried to write a complete engine in JavaScript before. So. <laughs> So the Web Worker API, I don't know much about how that works. What kind of multi-threading support do Web Workers give you? Is it like fake parallelism or is it like genuinely like kind of multi-thread, like stuff actually being executed in parallel? Yeah, my understanding is, I don't know Web Workers that close myself either, but my understanding is that actual just true Web Workers are on separate threads. And I think that I'm pretty sure that is true, but they're also then limited in what they can and can't do. You know, they can't, they can't interact with like the DOM and do things. They can't write to graphical context and so forth. And that that's the same, I think, even in the threading model of WebAssembly. But what they can do is, you know, network fetches, you know, store things to disk, do some kind of processing that is computational and not necessarily rendering based. And you know, that's the kind of thing that I think you you use those for. And that's the same thing that we use threads for inside of both WebAssembly, native client, on Android and iOS, et cetera. So You know, in college, I took a class on Android, and I think the one thing that I remember from that class is, assuming I'm remembering it correctly, is you never block on the UI thread, like the main thread that's rendering the UI. And I think what you just said there is that, you know, in in web workers, you can't alter the DOM, I guess. And given that we're talking about a rendering engine here for Google Earth, can you tell me about, like, what are the best practices for a multi-threaded manipulation of a user interface. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in the case of Google Earth, again, it's that whole frame loop, right? We have that loop that's just cycling and cycling and cycling. And basically anything that we can not do on that thread, but still allow it to draw is basically what we optimize. You know, we basically look at 
you know, we look at that loop, we look at all the function calls that are happening, we look at the type of work that is being done, and then anything that we can find that we could do on a different thread, we do it that way. And the way it works for us is we actually kind of have this job system in our code base to where we can just say, hey, you know, the user just flew the camera to this location, we need to request all of this data, decompress it, prepare it for rendering, and then we say, hey, hey, various jobs, go off and do that on background threads and then just deliver that data to the main thread, the main loop, once it's ready. And then it has to do as little as possible just to put it on the screen, basically. Mm-hmm. So that main thread, it never gets blocked. It's just kind of like grabbing data and then rendering that data. Well, I mean, that's not true. You just you optimize it as best as possible. Like it mm. inevitably has to do some things. And that's one of the interesting parts about these various platforms and their implementations. That there are things they can and can't do off the main thread. And while we do our best to optimize it, it's not perfect, right? Oh. You just do the best you possibly can. Oh, so when you mean various platforms, you're talking about like iOS, Android, web, different browsers. Yeah, and they all, it's not necessarily different browsers. I think the standards are pretty similar across browser. Okay. But like, yeah, definitely in different platforms. It's funny that sometimes like the rendering thread will actually be different than the application main thread, and sometimes they'll be the same. I can't quote you platform to platform, which is which, but we kind of have to deal with that in different ways on different platforms to kind of do the best for performance. So so it sounds like your adoption of WebAssembly today, a lot of it is you're porting native client code to WebAssembly. Is, is that what you said, or are you writing brand new modules in WebAssembly also? No, so our whole entire code base, since it's so cross-platform, like we've extracted away the specifics of kind of one platform to another to a very extensive degree. And so the amount of like native client-specific code in our raw code base is super tiny. The amount of you know WASM and scripted-specific code in, in our is also super tiny. And the same goes for you know iOS and Android. So really, we just basically do our best effort of implementing to that API as close as possible with whatever they're providing in that API. And sometimes there aren't equivalents, you know. And the basics are like you know a robust networking framework that we can write to because we need to be able to make bunch of network calls and then you know handling user input events is another big part of that layer right as far as touches and taps and you know swipes and zooms and whatever else other than that i mean it's not a lot of if you will platform specific code the rest of it's pretty abstracted so there's not a lot of code that we actually have to port and change we just have to write it to whatever that particular platform is capable of at the time i I guess i'm I'm a little confused um so what do you use WebAssembly for today? Like, can you give me a few examples for like modules where you are using WebAssembly in the stack of Google Earth? So anytime a network request is made, that goes through WebAssembly-specific API calls. But our network stack at, at a large is just abstracted. So we just, you know, inject a class that, you know, applies to the interface and then it makes those calls, right? The other things that we do is, yeah, is those user input events, right? The API mappings for all of those are very platform specific. So we write code that takes in that specific event, translates it into kind of a generic model, and then passes that into the application for processing. So all of the processing of these events, responding to the you know response from a network is all the same. And the only real difference is at the edges, right? The edges just do whatever is specific, you know, manipulates that result into something that our common code just understands and passes it along. So, you know, someone who works on Google Earth, they don't spend a lot of time having to think too hard about what the platform specifically is. We can just think about like handling what happened, you know, the event that happened and the network request came back, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Now, when you were writing the actual UI, though, the UIs themselves are very platform specific. So that kind of goes to our architecture a little bit is that we have all this kind of common C code where everything is abstracted as far away as possible and, and nobody really has to, generally speaking, worry about it unless they're the ones maintaining that interface. We do stop at the view. So we, we follow kind of a design pattern called model view present. And the view itself is implemented completely in the Android SDK, the iOS SDK, and, you know, JavaScript, we use Polymer as our main framework on the web. And the reason we do that is is so that way we can take full advantage of the actual platform when it comes to the UI and the user interface. But everything else is very generalized, very generic, very cross-platform. 
So all that, you know, logic, state management, rendering, et cetera. So the networking calls, for example, you know, zooming in on that for the sake of, of illuminating us further, the networking stack that's written in C++, this is going to be a complicated area of the code base, I would assume, because, well, or maybe not complicated, but has to be carefully architected, has to be fast because you're doing, you know, as I'm like rotating Google Earth, the networking stack is going to be like fetching things from the back end. It's going to be fetching these quad trees and swapping. And then like, you know, you're going to be throwing away old quad trees that you don't need anymore because you just rotated the earth. And the networking requests could be pretty intensive. And so you need like high performance out of that that networking stack. Am I articulating that correctly? Yeah, I guess. I mean, if you think about it, the, you know, a networking interface is pretty simple though. I mean, and... and the platform is capable of what the platform is capable of. I mean, the biggest demands that we have, you know, obviously besides ideally speed, right? But network latency is not in the processing. It's actually it coming back from the network, right? Mm. Any platform and computer is going to be faster at like handling the response than necessarily like the thing that's really slowing it down is actually fetching and transmitting the data. So it, I guess what I'm having trouble understanding is you have this native client thing that allows you to use C++ in the web or kind of anywhere else, and you're migrating that to WebAssembly. Can you remind me why you need to make that migration? Well, but one thing, native clients only available in Chrome. That's probably the biggest problem, right? Like, oh, okay. Yeah. And we want Google Earth to be available to as many people as possible. And so WebAssembly is kind of the new way that browsers are adopting to do this. But can't I use Google Earth on iOS or? You can, but it's an application you'd install from the store, right? And that, that's native code compiled in a different way. And then an application ostensibly written in Objective-C around it. Oh, okay. So that is not using the same networking stack. Yeah. It's using the native networking stack that's available on, in the iOS SDK, right? It's just delegating it out uh-huh. to that. And the same thing happens with native client WASM for the web is that, and at the end of the day, the browser is just making those requests fundamentally as, you know, Ajax requests. Okay. So is this about getting Google Earth on other browsers, essentially? Like that's what the porting effort's about? Yeah. For us as a product, that's our biggest win is mm. that we can get Google Earth to more people. And we really wanted to bring Google Earth to the web because for, you know, it's, most of its 14-year history, it's been a desktop application and a mobile application. And we really wanted to bring it to the web and make it just available to more people. And kind of one of the interesting pieces of that is that when we launched Google Earth on the web, it was the first time that Google Earth was actually available to Chromebooks, if you think about it, because you can't install native applications on a Chromebook. I mean, I know they're adding Linux support and so forth, but like we really lost out in that whole area of the world, you know, that may want to use Google Earth, they didn't really have a great option until we launched on the web. And being Chrome only is a pretty big disadvantage for us because it limits our audience, right? We, we want to meet people on the browsers they want to use with our web product and WebAssembly is kind of, that's what's going to give to us is that, you know, Mozilla, Apple, Microsoft, all of these people are, you know, actively working on WebAssembly implementations. They never started to my knowledge, native client implementations. When was Google Earth first available on the browser? Uh, it was just over two years ago. Wow. Okay. So two years ago, you got Google Earth in the browser, but it was only available on Chrome because you only had native client access there? Or was it just like degraded performance on Firefox? No, it, we never actually launched. We never launched on anything more than Chrome because the performance was just so bad. Because at the time... Oh. The only real option we had besides using native client was probably Asm.js. And Asm.js, maybe as you know, is, is literally compiling native code into JavaScript code that then is just processed and parsed. And it, one, it's also single-threaded. The binary sizes are huge as a result <laughs> because it's literally text, you know, text JavaScript. <laughs> and it was just really, really slow. It did run on other browsers, but it was just really slow and, and a very terrible experience. So we never actually launched it to the world. And then we had heard of WebAssembly at that point because it it has been around for a while as a growing standard, but it hadn't really been standardized through W3C yet. And they they hadn't actually started very much on browser adoption. And even today, you know, browser adoption is starting to come online, but it's very different per browser and so on and so forth. So even as we move to WebAssembly, our hope is that it becomes a cross-browser application, but it's still going to take time because those browser manufacturers need to get their WebAssembly implementations kind of up to par, if you will. 
Well, this is yet another interesting side of WebAssembly. Like, we've done probably 10 or 12 shows about WebAssembly at this point, and every episode, I'm like, oh, WebAssembly is like, it really adds a lot to the internet. Do you have any other predictions for how WebAssembly will change our interaction with the internet? Well, I mean, I think its biggest hope is it probably opens up a lot of different technologies and libraries and so forth to the web, right? Because WebAssembly even allows you to compile. There's so many different languages that people have done ports that will compile out as WebAssembly these days. I, I can't even keep track of them. Like we use C++, which I guess is maybe the primary language, but like people can do Rust. I think I've seen PHP implementations. Like there's just so many different languages and technologies that you could now bring to the web. I think for WebAssembly, that's probably the larger win. The other thing I think a lot of people are really hoping for is that I think people tend to use native code in cases of higher performance needs than JavaScript can deliver. And I've actually gone to a few of these WebAssembly W3C committee meetings and stuff. I, I'm not actually on the committee, but I, I tend to attend because we're just really interested in the technology. And there are things like everything from like banks and other stuff who just have to do like high throughput transactional stuff and they want to do it in a browser. And so they're really kind of hoping WebAssembly gives them the performance that JavaScript doesn't. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you know, you just think about it from the point of view of I want to write client-side browser code in Go, for example. Like, I don't want to use JavaScript to write my client-side browser application. I want to do it in Go. I want to do it in Java. I want to do it in whatever other language. That's pretty transformative. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I've seen a lot of experimental implementations and so forth of all kinds of different languages that will output WebAssembly. I don't even know all of them. So <laughs> so you could work on many different engineering problems. What motivates you to work on Google Earth? Uh, interesting. Yeah, I actually was a CS degree interested in computer science. I didn't start in like geo and then come to technology. I actually started in technology and came to geo. And, and what really kind of changed it for me is that I got some projects that were related to doing some just some basic mapping and so forth, but I just love the use case so much and like everything happens somewhere. And so like I can't honestly think of a technology-based, you know, use case, application use case that isn't somehow enriched or enhanced by geospatial technology anymore. So to be able to work on a product that's kind of literally about helping people explore the world around them. I just I couldn't imagine working on anything else at this point. It is such a positive sum technology because we can imagine so many different applications that can be built as this technology reaches maturity, which it feels like it's, I mean, it's, I mean, today, Google Earth, it's its one of these things like VR kind of, and, and I think, you know, coincidentally, Google Earth on VR is a pretty cool application. But it's one of these things where it like looks today like it's kind of like, oh, maybe a triviality, like I can tour the Earth and like, you know, virtual tourism. But, you know, the future applications for this thing, you can imagine lots of business applications and, you know, monitoring applications and things that help us do better climate science. Do you see Google Earth as potentially becoming like kind of a utility platform? Well, I mean, that's actually already happening today. Like that's been happening for years. Like I can't tell you how many crazy use cases, like give you some small ones just in business, like real estate agents use Google Earth a lot because they want to look at property lines and understand the you know details about the thing that's under sale and stuff solar planners use google earth today as well i actually got solar installed on my house a few years back and it was really funny because one of the people there to give me the quote showed up and he literally got a laptop out put it on my table my kitchen table and opened up google earth in front of me <laughs> and, and, and said, yeah. well looking at the pitch of your roof you know it <laughs> seems like the sun that tree is not going to be a shade issue you know blah 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 so it's it's crazy how many business cases there are already where Google Earth is an integral part. But you talk about things like, you know, climate science, humanities and stuff. And, and actually, I got my start before Google actually in crisis response. And there, Google Earth oh, no was way. just indispensable. Wow. Because it's... What kind of crises? So I actually used to kind of work for the U.S. government. And one of the things I responded to was actually the Haiti earthquake 
So basically, I was just in geospatial information technology to where I was gathering data. And my whole job was to bring all of this information together and project it onto Google Earth such that people could kind of get a kind of a common operational picture of what was going on. Because, you know, in that crisis, we had like so much information, but no way to make sense of it. And Google Earth was kind of the tool that everybody rallied around to bring it together. So Hmm. So you are a tech lead manager. That is a very specific role. Can you tell me what that means and what does a tech lead even do? And then who do you, what are you managing? Okay. So yeah, I I don't know how common these kind of titles and labels are for other companies, but basically what a tech lead manager means is that I contribute technically as a software engineer, but I also manage other engineers. That's kind of the distinction. And, you know, as a tech lead, I'm expected to, you know, kind of guide our architecture and ensure best practices and and so on and so forth. But we also have, we have a series of tech leads in our overall engineering group, some of which are managers, some of which are, in my case, I actually manage the people who work directly on the web platform, as well as our older desktop install platform. Okay, final question. How do you see WebAssembly being useful outside the browser? Hmm. Be honest, I haven't thought about it that much. <laughs> okay, that's a that's a fair that's a fair response. I'm so focused around getting you know our application working really well in a browser that yeah. All right. Well, fair enough. Okay. One more question: Google Earth for VR. Do you use that or like how cool is that? I haven't tried it. You should definitely try it. We have actually a setup in our office. It's actually based on the same technology that you know web, Android, and iOS is based on. So it's very much a similar experience from the kind of 3D rendering perspective. And it's literally meant to let you kind of just fly around you know, the world in kind of, you know, a reality environment. So its feature set, I would say, is much simpler. It's more just about like flying around cool places and looking at things. But it's definitely an amazing experience. And I totally recommend you try it out. All right. Well, good endorsement. Jordan, (laughs) thanks for coming on the show. Great talking to you. All right. Thank you. Wow.